0: Susan Robb, and welcome to New Books in Children's Literature. And today we're talking about two books with Pamela S. Turner, who's an award winning author of books for young people, um, particularly in the sciences. Uh, she has a Sybil's Young Adult Nonfiction Award and a Best Science Writing Award from the American Association. For the advancement of science and also National Science Teachers Association and number of other um, awards. The books that we're going to be talking about are are one science, one's history, actually, and uh, those are the first is Crow Smarts, a book called um, Crow Smarts: Inside the Brain of the World's Smartest Bird. That's a uh, photograph. Has photographs by Andy Cummins and art by Guido Di Filippo. Mm-hmm. And it's the fifth book in uh, Pam's Scientists in the Field series, uh, published by Houghton Mifflin. Second book is a book called Samurai Rising, and uh, it's the, the epic life of Minamoto. Yoshitsune, and we'll talk about that. That is illustrated by Gareth Hines and published by Charles Bridge. So uh, first, Pamela, thanks for joining me. Uh, and I wanted to start with crows. So, um,
1: Okay, first, <laughs> great.
0: First thing I wanted to ask you, uh, you talk about, this is about New Caledonian crows, and and you say that they do uh, deserve a spot alongside animals um, that we've known for a long time as you know unusually smart like dolphins monkeys chimpanzees and um, and and this talks about crows so tell me about these crows and how do they compare with crows kids might see around in the us
1: well the New Caledonian crows are a little bit different than the crows here um, but the, the thing that's very special about the New Caledonian crows is they evolved on this island, New Caledonia, in the South Pacific. And they took up the behavior of using tools. They used tools to get grubs, wood-boring insects, out of rotting logs. They used tools to kind of get into crevices between uh, the the leaves of plants, uh, into little hidey holes. Um, they use these tools and they stick them in and they pull out their prey. And they've um, now crows are very smart. They have uh, what scientists would would call flexible intelligence, meaning that they have um, that they are able to look at a situation and figure out how to solve the puzzle. And a lot of the puzzles that they're solving out is how to get food. Uh, and there are no woodpeckers in New Caledonia. Now, here in the United States, the wood-boring grubs and insects are typically they're they're taken by woodpeckers um, who have special adaptations for drilling into wood and getting the the grubs and the other bugs that are under the you know, that are inside the wood. But in New Caledonia, there are no woodpeckers. Woodpeckers never got to New Caledonia. It's an island. It's isolated. So the crows, being just generally smart animals, Figured out that they could use tools. So, in other words, they had this problem. There was food, it was a little hard to get. How do I get it? Well, they used brains over brawn to solve this problem. And they have been, uh, these same New Caledonian crows, have been captured and taken into captivity by scientists, and they've run cognitive tests on these crows who are able to solve some amazing problems, which I talk about in the book. Now, uh,
0: so If I'm understanding correctly, so with woodpeckers, woodpeckers, you know, just because of um, their beaks and that they are, Mm -hmm. they would be able to uh, go after the, this, but, but crows aren't designed that way. So they're having to do a workaround, right?
1: yeah crows don 't have yeah it 's a workaround crows don 't have they have a very all purpose kind of bill it's, it 's they 're omnivores, so they eat all kinds of food they 're not specialists, so they have um, they have sort of the spork of bird bills <laughs> it 's not great for any one thing but it 's pretty good for eating a lot of different things but it 's not hard enough um, woodpeckers have a very hard Bill and they also have special adaptations in, in in their head that kind of cushions the pounding, so their brain isn't you know turned to jello by all the tap tap tapping that they do. Um, so in the United States, woodpeckers tend to get those kind of the kind of uh, food sources that crows in New Caledonia have figured out to get with tools. Um, and they use the the crows in New Caledonia are extremely inventive. They not only use tools but they make and manufacture different kinds of tools. So in other words, they're not just picking up, uh, although they will do this, they they can just pick up a stick and poke, poke, poke. But they will also take a stick, take a fork, little um, forked branch, and then they will clip off all the little bits, leave one hooked in, whittle the hook down so that they have a specialized hook tool and use that. They will also take, they'll also strip these long, Um, there's something in New Caledonia called pandanus and these long leaves and they have they're sort of fat tropical leaves and they've got a barbed kind of barbed edge on the leaf so the crows will take and they'll tear pieces of this pandanus off and it has this hooked edge right and so they'll, they'll use their strip these strips of pandanus to poke into crevices to get things out and because a tool when they're using a pandanus tool pandanus tool is most effective if you know you're poking into a crevice you want a thin business end and then you want a wider end that's easier to hang on to the pandanus leaves have strong stringy things running through them so you can't tear a pandanus leaf on the diagonal but you can make it small at one end and fatter on the other end if you use kind of if you tear it tear it cut in, tear it, cut in, and you create kind of a stair-step tool. And that's what the crows do. So it's a multi-step process that they do to design these tools to use.
0: So a couple things uh, that jumped out at me. One was what you're talking about in terms of the tools, and and I wanted to ask you a little bit how that compares to, for example, um, apes, chimpanzees, in that, uh, and particularly though, that the the there's an aspect of this passing uh, crows passing what they learn on to the next generation, and and that that's something that we thought was what humans are particularly able to do. That's that's not you know that other species are not.
1: Yeah, so we know that that there are other species that make modifications to tools. Uh, chimpanzees are known. Some populations of chimpanzees will take sticks and kind of sharpen them on the end and poke them in crevices to try to stab at bush babies to get them out. Um, so that's and sometimes they'll modify if they're doing a if they're sticking a a twig in to get termites. They'll modify it to make it uh, to make it a little more streamlined. So there are other species that will modify tools. There's not very many of them. Um, the, the, the interesting thing about the New Caledonian crows is that, that because they clearly, there's some element of learning to this because these crows have been raised in captivity New Caledonian crows have been taken away from their parents. They hatched, you know, away from their parents, raised by entirely by humans, and then they've been given these sticks and these pandanus leaves. And the crows do seem to have a natural tendency to pick up sticks and and stick things in, in crevices. They do seem to have a natural tendency to tear at the pandanus leaves, but none of them can make a stepped tool. So that seems to be an innovation that was created by a crow and passed on to later generations of crows there's the crucial thing that that uh, has never actually been proven in another species by humans is can an animal take a tool modify it uh then another pass that usage pass that tradition of usage down to uh, another generation and then that generation might make more better modifications so cumulative tool evolution does that take place now that may have been what happened with the pandanus tools but there's no uh, there's no conclusive evidence of that but it seems that that is what may have happened with pandanus tool and there's a long-running study in new caledonia of the pandanus tools to see if scientists can document cumulative uh, tool evolution which would be quite astounding because no other species besides human does this
0: yeah it's fascinating let me ask you This, uh, um, do they also look at whether tools are shared do you know the sharing of tools
1: uh, we actually saw a little bit of sharing when we were in the field we were taking videos of the crows and i have one of these Uh, videos on the website and there was a juvenile and a parent working at the end of a log to get a grub out of the end of the log and the parent drops the tool and the and the juvenile picks it up and it seems gives it back (laughs) to the parent (laughs) bird to continue using now was that just the bird just uh, just you know it fell the bird reflectively picked it up and then the parent bird snatched it away or was that a deliberate Move on the, on the part of the juveniles to hand the tool, as we would say, although no hands being involved, <laughs> to hand the tool back to the parent. You know, you, it's not clear what actually happened. Um, generally, the birds make their own tools because there's plenty of tool making material around. It's not like there's any lack of leaf stems or anything. So usually mm-hmm. they'll just pick up their own and make their own. Um, there is, um, definitely evidence that they they carry favored tools around with them and they if they're working on something they'll take a tool and they'll they'll put it they'll be perching on a branch and they'll set it under their foot while they're doing preening their feathers and then they'll take it out and fly off with it so they can they seem to to have favored tools sometimes that they will keep around for a couple of hours and fly from place to place and you and continue using
0: now this uh this book is the fifth in the series you did Frogs, gorillas, mm-hmm. yeah. seahorses, dolphins. Um, did you have a fam- a favorite scientists as heroes growing up? Was that something that you had early interest in?
1: I was always very interested in animals. I think it's just something that you are just kind of born with. Um, my first memory is trying to pull my uh, this puppy that we had into my playpen by its ears. Um, you know, and obviously my... my I like to think my animal handling skills have improved, <laughs> um, but I've just always been interested in animals and how animals live and how they—they're kind of little alien nations that they see things and experience the world in in ways that are very different from the way we experience them. And yet, there's some commonality, and I'm and I'm fascinated by that. You know, what we can learn from animals, what we can learn about ourselves from watching animals. Um, more importantly, what we can learn about them, what we can learn about other other forms of consciousness. And that's why the my last couple of books have been about intelligent animals. So I wrote about dolphins before this. I wrote about bottlenose dolphins in Western Australia and there's a group of them that use tools, wild bottlenose dolphins that use tools. And so that's really interesting and it's only this group of of dolphins in this area that uses it. And it seems to be kinda of a cultural thing. Um and so, culture in animals is a really interesting topic. Um, there seem to be some differences in the kind of tools I don't talk about this much in the book, but there is some difference in the kind of tools that the crows in New Caledonia use in different parts of New Caledonia, which seem also to be local cultural variations. Um, I just find that really fascinating.
0: Now, what are your thoughts about how science is taught in elementary school because that's the age right that you'd expect this mm-hmm. to be used for?
1: Um, well, I'm not a teacher myself. I have three kids, and I just, I just love the idea that in addition to what's going on in the classroom, that kids can have access to books like these, which take a topic and delve into it in far more detail than you would get in a textbook. Um, and give it a personal edge so that you can learn about the lives of real scientists in the field. What do they do? How did they get to where they are? Um, I had the different scientists that I've written about include Tyrone Hayes, who's a professor of biology at Cal, who was a kid growing up and he was always wandering around in the swamps catching frogs and catching snakes and keeping turtles in his backyard. And and I talk about how hard it was for him coming from this small town in uh, South Carolina and how hard it was for him to Uh, get to college and be successful there when he didn't feel he had many role models and I talk about uh, Gavin Hunt in the crow book how he was a farmer for many years and didn't even start college until he was 30 but he was really interested in animals he was really interested in conservation so I like being able to show kids that there are different paths to success in science and there are many ways of many different kinds of of scientific fields um, and it doesn't you shouldn't be discouraged if you say well I'm you know I took chemistry and I didn't like it well there are plenty of other areas of science that you may might absolutely love and you don't have to feel like um, it's a dead end if you don't do well in one class I, I want kids to understand kind of the breadth of scientific activity and the kinds of things that they could do if they would like to be a working scientist um, I have Janet Mann in the Dolphin book, who was a girl and was inspired by the stories of people like Jane Goodall, who studied chimps, and she was one who discovered that uh, chimpanzees were using tools, and how inspirational that was to her as a girl of a woman in science making incredible discoveries about animal behavior, and she grew up and did her own research with dolphins and made her own incredible discoveries.
0: Now... Are there uh, related experiments that kids could do, let's say safely at home, uh, to uh, test out some of the concepts you talk about in the Crow book or in others?
1: Well, we give, and if you go to my website, and the on, for all of my books, there's a teacher's guide uh, discussion activity guide So you know i really invite teachers to go there and look at those guides and there are lots of activities that teachers or parents um, can do with their kids that are around the theme of the book um, i think that there's a lot that kids can do if they're interested in nature and interested in animals um, just by going outside and learning what's around them what species of animals are are in your neighborhood most People in the United States have crows nearby because crows do very well in in suburban areas. They do well in areas where there's where there's people. Um, crows are great to observe because they're larger, and so they're easy to spot. They're usually easy to find. You can hear them cawing. They're like border collars and collies and monkeys. They're always doing something interesting. So you can learn a lot. So they're a really easy bird to start with if you want to do some bird watching and and learn about animal behavior. So I encourage kids to just look and see what's around them uh, and learn about what's around them. You don't have to be out in the middle of New Caledonia to find wildlife. Uh, I work at I volunteer at a at a local wildlife hospital, and boy, we get quite an amazing variety of animals come through our doors and this is all in a catchment area that 's very suburban there are a few hills but um without houses but you know a lot of this just animals that come through people 's backyards and you learn a lot about what's what 's right in your own immediate area.
0: Now, one of the things you mentioned was about the outdoors. And and I wondered, how would you compare your experience growing up uh, with that of kids you talk to in terms of interest Mm -hmm. in science, the outdoors? Obviously, that comes up because of the Internet and Mm -hmm. even interest in research.
1: Yeah, well, when I was growing up, I didn't have the Internet. And so that's an amazing resource because you can get on there you can find videos about just about anything you want uh i have on my website if you go to www.pamelasturner.com i've got a page for the crows and i've got videos on there so you can read my book and then you can go to my website and you can see videos of the crows making the tools you can see an explanation gavin hunt does a dr hunt does an explanation of how the pen. Pandanus tool is made, so you can see that in detail. Um, I have, and I also put on just funny um, crow videos because because people find crows doing all sorts of hilarious things, like sliding. There's one of a of a of a crow sliding down a roof on a of like a mayonnaise jar lid, and uh, some crows playing in the backyard playing on swings, playing like these drooping branches, and they're using the swings. There's one of a crow. Um, just for fun, riding on a windshield wiper that's going woof, 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 woof. They're just such funny, quirky animals. And I think it's, it's just, there's so much more for kids to access now. And you can actually see very specific things. You don't have to wonder what a New Caledonian crow sounds like. You can go, you know, watch a video. You can hear them. And you can like, oh, that's quite, actually, that's quite different from the crows in my backyard. So it's just, such a wonderful rich environment for kids to take advantage of and you can have a very specific interest and chase it a long way with all of the resources that are available to kids now Uh, i guess the biggest difference is that a lot of kids today don't spend as much time the converse of that is kids today don't spend as much time actually outside looking at things um playing uh out in the in the backyard playing out in the Woods nearby, playing in the swamp, whatever, like Tyrone did, uh, wandering around looking for frogs. So that's the kind of thing that kids today miss, that um, I hope they will inspire, be inspired by books like this to go outside and see more and learn more about what's actually out there.
0: Yeah, and I, I'm glad that you talked about the website because it really is quite um, beautiful and there's a lot of information on there. So let me move to your uh, next book, the Samurai Rising book. And uh, that's, is that a new age category for you? That's a a chapter book. I
1: wouldn't say it's a new age category because the scientists in the field books are designed for nine to 12. And particular, the dolphin book is particularly long. And I think it's, the dolphin book is, is, Definitely for an older reader in that age range because I used a pretty sophisticated style in that one. Um, I think Samurai is for ten and up, so it's really not that much different. Samurai is different just in terms of I did. It's a long work of biography slash history. Um, so that was a little different for me, although my first book was about Japan. My first book was a pic- picture book called Hachiko, The True Story of a Loyal Dog. So I lived in Japan for six years, which is why I wanted to write uh, Samanai. But I, I, although the, I know Amazon says 12 and up, but the publisher says 10 and up. And I just saw some posts online of some teachers who were saying, you know, I've got fourth graders, uh, I've got a fourth grader read this and, and loved it and I thought it would be too much for him, but he absolutely loved it, so. You know, it really depends on the child.
0: Yeah, well, it is terrific. I mean, it's fast-paced. There's a lot of drama. Thank you can you. see what would attract a reader, you know, the topically. Uh, one of the things in reading it, you can see how, um, like, harsh, the extreme conditions uh, that Yoshitsune faced growing up. And it, so what I, when I was reading that, I was thinking, well, you know, it, logically that made him capable of enduring, you know, unbelievable hardship Mm -hmm. and duress and battle. Like he talks about when they, you know, when they're in the mountains and no one thought you could come down out of there. And yet he just Mm -hmm. thought you could. Um, What other qualities do you think played a key role in who he became? I think the qualities that played a key role were the fact
1: that he did not grow up, uh, among other members of the extended Minamoto clan, so he grew up totally in isolation, and he didn't actually get together with with his brother, who was the leader of the uh, the remaining members of the family, until he was um, twenty years old. So he lived all he he grew up totally outside the family, and so he was he grew up on stories. Um, hearing about how great his family was, but he didn't live among them. So I think he had this notion, because he was never, he, he was a monk in a temple. Uh, he was living in, and then he ran away and, and learned to be a Samurai, but he was, he was living with another Samurai in the north. But it was basically a charity case. So this whole time, he's thinking, well, you know, I have this great family name and I need to live up to it. I've been I, I've sort of been uh I, I haven't ever lived with my family. He was he was um kind of taken away and, and um stuck in a monastery and taken away from his family just to kind of sideline him. And but he wanted to be in the thick of things. He wanted to be worthy of his great family name, this great family Samurai tradition, and I think that drove him just, the, and I think a lot of people can, can relate to that, you know, the, just the drive to want to be somebody, uh, to want to live up to your own uh, your ideals of what you should be. And I think there was a fundamental insecurity there. Uh, he never probably felt like he really belonged, he really wanted to, and that drove him to kind of the, the, the heights of military achievements.
0: So in a way, he set his own bar, and maybe he set it higher than it even might have been had he grown up under other circumstances.
1: Yeah, I think what, frankly, what what made him great and what killed him was the fact that he had these ideals, and they were not very well based in reality. Because as it turned out, his family was not quite uh, well. Let's let's put it this way: I, I like to compare him to. King Arthur and Luke Skywalker, because they're raised in obscurity, they grow up to become heroes and then they discover that they're, that they're, um, that their worst enemy is actually a member of their own family. Um, the difference is that Yoshitsune's story is true.
0: Now uh, with that, do you think that he was a man particularly suited for the time? in which he lived? I mean, would it have been so, you know, so different? I I guess it always would be, but, but what do you think about him in the context of the time he lived? Yeah, I think he, um, I don't really you know it's it,
1: we're eight 800 years removed from him and we have to go on the sources that we have and you have to sometimes read between the lines uh, if you're looking at a historical figure from so long ago and try to interpret what they must have been like from their actions and what other people said about them we have nothing um, we have nothing that he wrote directly we have none of his you know his words he didn't leave us any really anything um, directly so this is all inferred but I think he was um, a man of his times, but at this, uh, and yet, and yet, it's easy to understand his motivations. I think it's very easy to understand why he would do the things he did. Um, so I think it's it's a story that transcends time and culture, um, sibling rivalry, uh, ambition, pride. Um, I think those. Those are all things that we can all recognize, and that's what attracted me to the story and that's well made me want to present it uh, to an American audience an english speaking audience um, I think it was it was often a delicate balance because you want to talk about there are things that happen that are really horrible in the book. And so you want to acknowledge that this is horrible and that the way they treated peasants was terrible. At the same time, you want to put him in the context of his times and say, okay, within the context of his times, uh, he was actually, you know, he was actually pretty good to common people. But I mean, that's a low bar given the way Samai behaved in the late 12th century. Um, So there was always that dance between, you know, you want to, you want people to to remember if you're judging your Sunni, you're judging him by twenty first century standards, and that may or, that may not necessarily be a fair way to judge him.
0: Now, the samurai are also, are often seen as lone warriors, and so I was interested to know if you saw okay. them that way. And also related to what you said about King Arthur, and you talked about Luke Skywalker, but but to King Arthur, how would you compare? the samurai and how they're seen in Japanese culture to how knights are viewed in Western culture?
1: Um, I, can't, I don't have a, enough depth of knowledge about Western knights, to be honest, to make a, a clear comparison. I would say that the most obvious comparison is that there's a tremendous amount of mythology about both. Uh, and when and it was very interesting for me in delving into the the 12th century samurai to investigate not only what happened at the time at the end of the 12th century when this this titanic civil war was happening, but also how did people view it afterwards? How did medieval Japanese view this these events after they happened? It it became really the it's um uh, the national saga, and it influenced. Um, generations and generations of of Japanese for hundreds of years. And uh, just as the legends of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table and all that inspired people in medieval Europe and, you know, in later centuries, and one of the things I do, if you go to my website, I, I... I added a page about uh, Yoshitsune, and I have examples of how his story has been told and retold over the years in very dis- different media, like uh, uh, Japanese puppetry, uh, bunraku puppetry, and kabuki theater, and manga and anime and visual novels, and and uh, computer games, and in how and art forms such as um, such as scroll paintings and. Woodblock prints, and I think it's amazing the way these the way these stories influence us and the way we react to the stories. So part of this is what actually what I talk about in the book is what actually happened versus how these events have been remembered, which is also part of history. Um, I think that when people are thinking about samurai and how samurai are perceived, um, one of the things I learned through my research is the samurai of Yoshitsune's time are different from the samurai of later ages as you might expect and so people's vision of the samurai like as a lone warrior doing duels or something that's that's the vision of the samurai from more like the 17th century not from your time so it kind of depends you know the the myth of the samurai is drawn um, more from later medieval times Uh, or Edo period times, or even Meiji times than it is from these late Han period when Yoshitsune was active. And I thought that was interesting, because you can see by looking at Yoshitsune at uh, the very early period of Samurai rule in Japan, you can kind of see where they started from and get a better sense of where they ended up.
0: Now, what about your thoughts on... Uh, You you mentioned games and and how uh, his story ended up in all of these different um, parts of uh, cultural material, puppetry and theater and and all of that. Um, Do you think we glorify warriors too much to our children? I think
1: that we are social primates. Uh, and I think that we are irresistibly attracted to violations of social norms. This is my, you know, this is my animal behavior evolutionary biologist coming into the history yeah. project. But we are riveted by violations of social norms. The worse the violation of social norms, the more interested we are. That's why people enjoy reading about murder mysteries if somebody wrote a novel about, you know, somebody's uh, uh, outdoor couch cushions got stolen, nobody would read it. (laughs) It's just not interesting enough, you know, we want the stakes to be high. Um, So I think that there's a natural uh, attraction to extreme stories. We don't necessarily want to live in these times. We don't want to we don't want to hopefully do these things that are done. We want to have a way of experiencing them without suffering from them. So we want to experience the full gamut of things that can happen to people without suffering the terrible consequences of some of the things that happen to people. That's why we like marine mysteries. That's why people watch game of Thrones. You know, that's extreme behavior and we are riveted by extreme behavior. Um, I think to be interested in reading about extreme behavior is not to condone it. And I try in the book to put Yoshitsune in the context of his times and show um, how he actually exemplified the standards of samurai at the time. Those should not the standards of our 21st century but I think if you're going to learn about what happened and if you learn about what happened in the late 12th century it really helps you understand later Japanese history you have to understand the samurai at the time what their ideals were how he met those ideals, how he kind of exemplified some of those ideals and it helps to understand the culture and medieval Japan who I People idolized him. You know why were these why were these the ideals? Why were these ideals so important? Um, I do think you have to look at how he exemplified the ideals at the time, and we are fascinated by Samani um, because I think we're fascinated by these extremes of human behavior.
0: Now, did you try and port? when you were looking at the samurai and looking at his story did you try to portray it uh, differently um, than you then in a lot of other places you'd seen and and were you looking also to make him a little more personal and more human
1: Yes, well, I, I what I did was I pulled together some of the major sources, which is the Heike Monogatari, the Tale of the Heike, which is a it's a mixture of, of history and literature. Uh, the Zuma Kagami, which is the semi-official history of the of the Kamakura Shogunate, which was the very first Shogunate in Japan, which was started by Yoshitsune's brother Yoritomo, and so I pulled that together with other contemporary. Other 12th century sources, uh, diaries of people who lived at the time, writings from the time, um, and I also looked at a tr- at a wide variety of academic sources that talked about the political situation at the time, the land tenure time, the, la- the land tenure system, which ties into what happened a lot. Um, and I wanted to, you know, just about the religion at the time. Um, how Samurai lived, um, other sources of stories about Samurai. And what what I did, which had not been done in English before, I pulled it all together into a biography and tried to pull away the layers of mythology. I acknowledged the layers of mythology and I point out how they're, chunks of time when we don't really know what Yoshitsune was doing and those chunks of time have been filled in over the centuries by many storytellers who invented all these things that happen which are very entertaining stories they are just stories Um, but I mention those because they're very iconic some of them very iconic stories in Japan Um, but what I wanted to do was kind of filter uh, acknowledge some of the legendary stuff and say yeah yeah they're legendary things this is what we think we know happened uh, obviously, this is 800 years ago. Um, the gold standard for history is you want to have multiple sources independent of each other uh, that are unbiased and lived as close as possible to the events that they describe. Well, 800 years ago, there aren't, frankly, there aren't very many um, things that happened 800 years ago that you have a lot of sources that meet all of those um, those meet that kind of historical gold standard um, so I talk about that in the source notes when I had conflicts between the sources and the source notes I talk about why I decided that this thing that happened was more likely than this other thing um, but I wanted to pull together as much as possible and and place him in his times and explain what was going on at the times, explain his behavior, explain other people's behavior within the context of the times, while also pointing out that some of this behavior was really pretty awful. Uh,
0: I wanted to ask you, too, sort of lastly on this area, about the illustrations. A couple things about that. First, I was interested to... Read that Gareth Hines uh, had a long time interest in Yoshitsune's story. Uh, and then, so, so that made me wonder where you first came across his story. But also, I, I thought it was uh, interesting too that you both have black belts and karate. So, having taken several years of martial arts, I both admire that and I'm a little jealous. Uh, but can you talk about that in terms of your coming across the story and how you think these illustrations do with the story?
1: Yeah, I think the illustrations are great. When I first conceived of this project, I knew I wanted it to be, um, I knew I wanted the book to be novel trim size, like the size and shape of a novel. I knew I wanted it to be art illustrated rather than maybe photographs of, uh, you know, old armor, things like that. Because I felt that this re- this was really um something that would benefit from an art illustration approach. Anything I could have put in in terms of photographs of old objects would have been entirely, well, this is kind of approximate to what, you know, they wore at the time when Yoshitsune was was alive. You know, this is what they wore in in terms of their armor. Instead, I thought, well, if I'm going to have to approximate, um, because we don't have things that he owned, we don't have any portraits of him uh, done at the time, well, we might as well um give kids a better sense for what it looked like by doing art illustrations and i knew i wanted the art to be kind of a cross between uh sumi-e which is japanese ink painting and kind of a manga style cuz i thought that would i thought that would really um kids would respond to that because kids today, you know, re- really interested in in Japanese culture and the mono anime, visual novel stuff, and so I thought that would be a very appealing way to do it. Uh, I was really delighted. I didn't know that I didn't know any anybody who could do that kind of a thing. Um, most of my books of science books are photo illustrated, but I asked a friend, Jenny Holm, who does uh, a series of graphic novels with her brother, Matt, and she knows, because so she, she just knows more graphic novel people. I said, do you know anybody who can do this? And she said, oh, Gareth Hines, you should, go, you know, you should think about Gareth Hines. So I was like, okay. And I actually, when she said that, then I remember, oh yeah, he does the, the the graphic novel adaptations of Western classics. Yeah, he can do arms and armor, you know, he's done Macbeth and Beowulf and all this and uh and so it turned out that Charles Bidge, the publisher they were independently also thinking of Gareth Hines. so this right. is all we were all on the same page it was great and luckily he was between projects and he was able to do it and it turned out through talking to him he he has a uh, i think he's a third degree uh black belt in aikido and he had actually in art school had uh had done some sketches of Yoshitsune and his best friend Benke, he'd done, he'd done to illustrate, it was more of a legendary thing, but he actually knew the knew who they were. At least he'd actually heard of the story before. So that was great. Um, so I, I think that was a bit of a selling point for him. And I've been doing for the past hmm, 11, 12 years, I have been doing Kendo, which is Japanese sword fighting. And, um, I'm a first degree black belt in that. And I'm supposed to be testing in a couple of weeks for second degree. Um, so yeah, so it was really interesting that we had this martial arts link and the editor, uh, Alyssa Mito pusey she is a uh, she also studies Aikido. She also has a black belt in Aikido. So yeah, it was kind of cool. We all bonded over a mutual martial arts thing.
0: So so while, one thing I did want to say, sort of pulling these together in a in a certain sense. I mean one of the things that struck me in a way you could you could Say that there were both stories of brains over brawn because um, that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, because Yoshitsune, we didn't really talk about that, but it wasn't someone who you know looked like he was going to be a warrior on the field, and and so that was part of the story there as well. So, in general, um, would you like to talk in any way about that? But also, what are your hopes for what kids? may take away reading this and and reading some of your other books both about science and about history yeah I
1: think it will I hope it will give uh, kids a greater appreciation For the natural world in the case of the crow book i hope it will give people a different way to look at crows because a lot of people don't like crows i of course think that's you know (laughs) (laughs) i think that's incredibly misguided um they're just such great animals they're 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 wonderful and smart and interesting and i just yeah never get tired of looking at crows um I spend a lot of time at crows because I, I rehabilitate them for the wildlife hospital, so uh, I had a crow upstairs in my aviary uh, recently. So I really hope that will give kids a different way of looking at crows, a different way of looking at animal intelligence, uh, different way of appreciating the way another species perhaps can perceive the world, and, and also we can see some commonalities in our, in our cognition. Uh, with Yoshitsune, I hope that... Um, kids will, will read the story and understand a little bit more about, um, Japan, about the Samurai, where they came from, where some of their standards came from. Um, I like the idea of writing about it. it uh, if you write about an island nation at a fairly early stage of its development, obviously modern Japan is so tremendously complex, but, if you go back eight hundred years, I think it's a little bit easier for kids to see the interplays of economics because they talk about you know how the the, the the rice harvest failed and then they couldn't go to war and and I talk about the a little bit about the land tenure system and how that drove the politics in addition to all the stuff by Yoshitsune himself. I talk about um, kind of the technology of warfare why they use why the the samurai used uh curved swords why they were at this point in time why mounted archery was kind of the definitive um samurai um, tactic and so i think it's it's if you take a small country like that at a early stage in development it's fairly isolated Kids can see kind of the way politics and economics and technology and culture, religion, all these things kind of intertwine uh, to create history. And I thought it was a really great microcosm for kids to see these forces and work and how those forces affect individual people. Yoshitsune, I like because he's he has such an improbable uh, story. And the only description that we have of him is that he's small, pale, skinny, protruding eyes and buck teeth. And one of the indra- and I talk about that a little bit in the in the source notes. You know, if if you were going to write about a, a hero and you were going to make stuff up, you'd probably make him look, you know, really big and brawny and I don't know. You'd make him sound like super duper and handsome and broad-shouldered and yeah, all this kind of stuff. But that's not what's come down to us. And since this is so contrary to a heroic idea, ideal, that it's probably still in the narrative because that's true, because he really did look like that. Um, and that, I think, is really you know interesting, so kids can say, "Well, here's a little scrawny guy. He didn't even have any Samurai skills. He showed up uh, wanting to be a samurai at a northern lord's um, home, and he was 15 years old, and he didn't know anything, and he'd been a monk been training to be a monk so he didn't have military training and in those days if you were a samurai you start training when you were you know six years old by the time you were 16 you were ready to go to war um so he was like i talked in the book about he's like he was somebody who would never played little league and he shows up at spring training for the yankees and it's incredible that he became a samurai and a leader of samurai and a very respected leader of samurai
0: Well, I want to remind people where to find you. Uh, They can go to PamelaSTurner.com for your website. and, uh, And also, thank you for joining me today and talking about all of this. The books are terrific, and I hope people will go look for them. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.